recognizing that leadership is not about running the business. It's about finding people smarter than you, trusting, empowering, and equipping them, and then getting out of the way. You can't scale until you can let go. And we scaled when we started to spend, I spent less time being CEO or running a company, and I spent more time out of the office hunting for talent, finding amazing, amazing people don't wander into your office. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. Dear listeners of Superhumans at Work podcast by Mind Valley, be sure to tune in regularly where we have two episodes every single week bringing you new guests, new ideas around leadership, communication, productivity, and more. And if you're enjoying this and you're just tuning in, be sure to hit that subscribe button so you can never miss an episode and always be tuning in to the latest content coming through. So now let's get started with today's episode. Hey everybody, this is your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and I want to let you know, if you have any questions you'd like for me to answer on the show, be sure to email me, jason at mindvalley.com, where I can answer these questions live, such as the question I just received from Agueda Sanchez, I'll answer at the end of this show. Wanting to learn more about the technique I use to summarize all of the episodes by the end of the interview, as well as when is it a good time to take a break from any practice or take a vacation? We'll talk more about that at the end of the episode. And if you have any questions yourself, don't be shy to email me, jason at mindvalley.com. I'll be happy to answer it towards the end of the episode. And now let's get started with this amazing interview with the one and only Jeff Hoffman. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Superhumans at Work. This is your host, Jason Mark Campbell. And I'm so excited for today's episode because we have a legend in the field of business building, entrepreneurship, and CEO of excellence, Jeff Hoffman is an entrepreneur. He's spoken on multiple stages. He's written books and he's now a humanitarian as well, where he is the man behind some of the successes of companies you may have heard of, such as booking.com, UBID, and he serves on the boards of several companies across the world and he supports entrepreneurs and small business owners worldwide. He is the chairman of the Global Entrepreneurship Network, which works with entrepreneurs in 180 countries and is the founding board member for the Unreasonable Group. He supports the White House, the State Department, the United Nations, and similar organizations internationally on economic growth initiatives and entrepreneurship program. He's been featured on publications such as Fox News, Fox Business, CNN, Bloomberg, CNBC, ABC, NPR, pretty much everywhere around the world. His accolades are amazing. He's spoken around the world. He's an engaging storyteller, and he is here with us on Superhumans at Work sharing his wisdom, Jeff Hoffman. It's a pleasure to have you. Jason, thank you so much for having me here today. I'm just laughing because now we're out of time. (laughs) We're out of time. I had to read all your accolade. I actually cut it. You could have just said, hey, this is Jeff. I would have been happy with that. All right, everybody, let's have Jeff speak here. He's going to share some wisdom. You'll find out how awesome he is once we go through these topics. But honestly, Jeff, I'm reading your bio. It's so impressive. And, you know, Amanda has done so many things such as you. It's quite an honor to have sharing your wisdom here. You've also written your book, Scale, The Seven Proven Principles to Grow Your Business and Get Your Life Back. And so you come across to me as someone who's been a hardcore entrepreneur, a powerful CEO, yet you also have a great balance in your life. And so I feel like that probably didn't happen all at the same time. So I'd love to give you some time to kind of walk us through your journey. Like, how did you end up being someone that goes into businesses, scales businesses, makes them successful? 
what's going on here? Who's this Jeff guy? So uh, you're right, by the way, that doesn't happen all at the same time, which is part of why now that I have a white colored beard, I'm trying to share anything I've learned with anybody I can share it with, which is why I'm honored to be on your podcast here. There's a lot of mistakes I made along the way that I was thinking somebody knew I should not have turned left here. Why can't they tell me? So my commitment is to give back by sharing everything we've learned. We are blessed enough that several of these companies we created scaled into multi-billion dollar global companies, and we made note of what worked along the way. So for me, just very quickly, I'm an engineer by trade, a software engineer. And, you know, I got a corporate job. And remember, you know, you and I aren't talking about right or wrong. We're talking about DNA. Everybody should follow their path. So the corporate America path wasn't for me. You know, what I desired in life wasn't money per se, it was freedom, right? Uh, freedom's a byproduct, you know, money's a prerequisite of freedom. But I was focused on freedom because I wanted to live a life that I would look back one day and say, man, what a ride, right? I wanted to say I used my time well. And I did the things I wanted to do. And I kept hearing people say, Jason, that the reason they couldn't live the life they wanted was because of their job. I got responsibilities, Jeff. I got a mortgage. We got kids now. And I want to say this to your listeners. Your career should be the vehicle that takes you to the places you want to go, not the obstacle that prevents you from getting there. So I quit my engineering job because my life's dream was to go see the world. And I grew up in a small town where no one had any money and no one saw anything. And I realized no one was going to take me on a trip around the world. So the only way I was going to get it was to create my own future. The whole beauty of being an entrepreneur is the opportunity to design your own future. So I quit. And the very first thing I ever started, and again, I'll do this quickly, but the very first thing I ever started was I was sitting there thinking, if my job it has two goals, to pay the bills, but to allow me to live my version of an epic life, which is what I want all your listeners to answer, what's your epic life and what are you doing to build it? then I'm going to have to create that. So I wanted to create a travel company. And my very first company ever happened to be, when you go to an airport and you check yourself in at a kiosk and print your boarding pass, that was my first product. You used to have to wait in a long line in the airport. I was trying to find a way to go see the world and get paid to do it because that was my dream and my responsibility. And I said, how do I do these together? When I came up with that idea, because I was intentionally trying to find that, I created those kiosks and it's like every airport in the world and every airline wanted one. And all of a sudden, I'm flying all over the world to sell my kiosks, seeing the world and getting paid to do it. So that was kind of the launch point for me was discovering or proving to myself that dreams aren't irresponsible. You just got to build a business out of them. Mm. Now, I love how right now I've already detected that you seem to have a trend in the kinds of businesses you got involved with that also supported the things you wanted to have support in your life. So now you're here, you're going in the airports, travel is being unlocked as you build a business that we take for granted. We all go to these kiosks now. And then you also got involved with Priceline.com and Booking.com. Now it sounds like you're trying to travel and going to different, is it hotels? Like how did you transition into that? Because it seems very related. It absolutely is. You know, the reason that I was part of that when our little team got together to go build that was for the same reason. How do we live a life where we're creating value, meaning getting paid, achieving economic freedom, and being able to do whatever it is that you want to do? If your dream is to be sitting on the front row on the runway at Fashion Week, then you should be launching a fashion company that creates a product that everybody in Fashion Week wants. The key to living an epic life, Jason, is to become valuable to the people you want to be around. I wanted every airline in the world to call me, so I had to give them a reason to. If you want the fashion designers to call you, you have to give them a reason to. 
you become valuable by becoming the go-to person for the industry you want to be in. And you become the go-to person by solving a problem that they need solved. And you solve a problem by staying up all night and studying an industry. So that's the common element in each of my stories was we stayed up all night and studied industries and looked for a space where we could come in and create a better solution so that everybody would be calling us. That way, we got to be in the industry, we got to sit on the front row, and we got paid to do it. And you know that's why later after, uh, obviously, company PricelineBooking.com, that company scaled globally and became, a, again, a multi-billion dollar company, as did UBID. But that's what enabled me later, that formula, to go start a music company and a film company. Because what I did was I stayed up all night and trying to find a problem they would solve so that I would become valuable to the key players in the industry. So suddenly I would be the go-to person that people were calling. That's the simple formula, honestly, to go live your own epic life. What is it you want to do? You need to become valuable to those people. So there you have it, everybody. I have to dig on deeper here, Jeff, because this sounds incredible. And when you say it, I'm like, okay, that sounds pretty logical. I think I can do that. But I would assume there's a few core skills you need to develop to become that person that's valuable. I mean, in your case, my assumption here is you have this software engineering skill set that allowed you to be able to program or see software. I don't know if this was it. Are there these types of skill sets that I can develop today before I jump in and become a person that looks at these industries? Because already I love the way your mind thinks. I will give you two really critical ones. By the way, quick funny story. I thought I was a pretty good software engineer just until one day sitting at my own company. My engineers, everybody's staring at me. Jason and I'm like, what's going on, guys? And they're like, yeah, Jeff, could you just back away from the keyboard for a minute? And I said, sure, why? And they said, we're going to need you to stop coding. And I said, why? And they're like, dude, you're like the worst programmer ever. And I said, okay, but I own this company. And they said, and somehow you're the worst developer here. And I said, we all have a computer science degree. And they said, and somehow the rest of us learned it. <laughs> and so my engineering skills did not last long. I said, what do you guys want me to do? And they said, go figure out how to market and sell because as soon as this product's done, somebody's got to sell it. So I wound up being way more on the marketing, more than the sales side in my life. But here's the thing. There were two skills looking back that I think are absolutely critical. And you and I were chatting earlier about scale, right? That one book I've written is called Scale. What was key to us growing our companies? And I'll tell you what it was. It's the answer to your question. These two skills. The first one is recognizing that leadership is not about running the business. It's about finding people smarter than you, trusting, empowering, and equipping them, and then getting out of the way. You can't scale until you can let go. And we scaled when we started to spend, I spent less time being CEO or running a company, and I spent more time out of the office hunting for talent, finding amazing, amazing people don't wander into your office. And they probably don't respond to your job posting because they're amazing and they have five job offers queued up. They're not looking. You have to go find talent. Talent is way scarcer than funding. So I spent a lot of time creating the inverted pyramid. They don't work for me. I work for them. Your job as a leader is to build the company where all the best people in the industry want to work for you and nobody wants to leave. That's a lot more work and a different focus than running the company. So my companies grew when I stopped running them and spent my time, again, finding people smarter than me, building a great place for them to work, and then just serving them. It's kind of a servant leadership model. The second skill I think that was critical, I'll call it empathy, but that might be a big word for me. It's really just listening. 
It's when it occurred to me that leaders feel like they should be talking. You go into a staff meeting, you're the CEO, the founder, everybody's looking, whatever, the manager. You're the boss in that room. Everybody's looking at you. So you feel like you should be talking. But what I discovered was leading is far more powerful if you spend the first 80% listening and then the ending 20% reaching a conclusion. So what that meant to me was that most people build a business from their conference room out. What do you do when you get a good idea? You go in your conference room with your team and you start drawing. But the smartest entrepreneurs, innovators, and companies build their product from the customer in. So the second I have an idea, I don't go to the whiteboard. I go to the car, the parking lot. I drive across town. I find the people I think are going to buy my business. I grab a pencil and a notepad and I say, please start talking. And I spend a day in the life listening to everybody I think might buy this product. So by the time I even start designing the product, I've been on a listening tour and I have a much better idea of what the market's actually willing to bear, what product they want, what they're willing to pay for. So those are the two things that really helped us scale. Listening skills as a leader and comprehending that leadership is a servant leader model. Your job is not to tell people what to do. It's to let smarter people than you do it. That is incredible. I almost, oh, I'm like having a sigh of relief because this sounds like such a humane way of building great businesses. And we were just talking before we started this podcast about how there's so many times people build these great quote unquote products that nobody buy, or they seem to just not fit what the customers really want. Is this a symptom of people designing these in a boardroom as opposed to just listening and talking to the customer? And how can we do better? I think that's absolutely a symptom of that because the quote conventional wisdom, I don't know, came out of Silicon Valley or whatever, was this concept of the MVP, the minimally viable product. And what they said was get a prototype, then build an MVP, then push it out in the world and see what people think. And, you know, I think people are getting mad at me at Silicon Valley. They invite me out there to speak and I would tell them, if your first real input is the MVP, you're already too late. Like I said, what people need to do is schedule time out of your office. I scheduled time to leave the office, change clothes, and go hang out where the customers were. In the early days when we were launching the set of Priceline companies, I used to change into jeans like every other Friday and go to a discount store. I would go walk around in a Kmart, a Walmart, or a grocery store like I was shopping and just chat with people because my customer, even my own employees, wouldn't have used our product. My customer was a low-end discount shopper who, here's an example. We actually tested this one day. If you make decent money and you like Coke and you walk into a store and they sell Pepsi, you'll go to the next door. You're not just going to buy Pepsi if you drink Coke. You're not going to buy whatever Lay's if you like Ruffles. So what we did was when we tried that experiment in a higher-end store, people said, where's the Coke? We only have Pepsi today or I'll come back tomorrow. Then we went to the lower-end store, which is our customer. We put Coke and Pepsi side by side, and we severely discounted one. And they walked up and they said, well, we prefer Coke, but the kids are drinking Pepsi this week. We said, well, you said you like Coke. And they said, not at this price. Our customer had a completely different way of running their life, which you can't see until you schedule time out of your office to spend a day in their life. That's how you can do this better. Find your customer, change clothes if you have to. I used to schedule every other Friday to be out of the office and just hanging. By the way, you're not selling. You're not wearing your company's logo. You're just hanging in the diner, eating apple pie with people or wandering around the store with a shopping cart, listening to conversation and chatting with people. That's how you develop customer intimacy. 
that would solve a lot of the shelves full of products that nobody wants because nobody asked them before they built it. Damn, this is so powerful. It even reminds me of the time I used to sell a product, which was about, it was actually one of the more esoteric products we used to have at Valley, which was around energy clearing sessions. And I went through the session myself and I was like, I don't see how this works for me. And I actually picked up the phone for people that bought it the year before. And I asked you like, why did they buy? And I just started getting conversation with them. And one of them, his name was Chuck, was basically saying, oh my God, this is like a happiness booster pill. And I started telling my psychologist that I've been going to these sessions. And since I started doing these, I've been able to retain a job. And I'm like, that's why I need to sell it. I need to sell to Chuck. And why is it that it's so hard? And it seems like the higher up people are in an organization, the more they feel they have the right to be disconnected from the end customer. Why does that trend happen? How do we how do we stop that? It is just amazing. One time I sold one of my companies to American Express and I went to a corporate meeting at a high level and I was trying to understand. And it's an interesting thing because big companies, they had so much internal bureaucratic and infrastructure stuff to do. They just never had time to leave the building. So I wasn't blaming big companies, but I was recognizing the reason why job growth, right? New job growth, innovation, so much creativity comes out of little companies because they have the time to spend with the customer. So if you're a large company, there's no reason you can't start doing this. Tell your staff, I will not be here Friday. I've got to, with your permission, cover one thing about scale that's brand related because you just brought it up and it's really, really important. And one of the other reasons that people can't sell their product is that they don't know what their true brand asset is. And the brand asset, let me explain it this way, Jason. It's the one single most important reason anybody bought your product. And let me tell you something, it's usually not the thing you're marketing. And the reason why is because they don't have that conversation you just talked about having with customers that you and I are talking about. So let me give you the example. When people are selling a product, what they're trying to do is give you as many reasons as possible to buy the product. So they tell me, I'm going to give you a real quick example. A guy that came to me, he made wall mounts for projection TVs, hang your flat screen TV on the wall, buy his mount. And he said, I managed to get my mount in Walmart and Target on the shelf, but I'm not really selling it. So I said, what are you selling? And he said, well, I want everybody to buy my product. So I'm selling every asset I have. That's intuitive to do that. But that's not how people really buy. So I said, show me your packaging and your website and your collateral. You know what it said? It said five things. It said RTV mounts. It said they're lightweight. They're easy to assemble. They fold up when not in use. They're competitively priced and they're made out of the same steel as aircraft chassis. So that's the five things because you're trying to tell everybody all the reasons to buy it. But here's an exercise for all your listeners. Your brand asset is the answer to this question. If you told a customer, tell me one and only one reason, one most important reason you do business with me or you bought my product, what is the one most important reason that you wound up deciding you know, to go to an energy clearing session with Valley. That answer is your brand asset. And here's how I recommend all of your listeners do. I always tell people to do this. Send a text or an email. You guys should do this at Valley To 10 or more customers, to 10 people that are already bought product from you and ask them this question. Give me the one most compelling reason. You can only pick one that you bought my product. And nine out of 10 people will give you the same answer And I'm telling you, Jason, almost 10 out of the 10 times, it's not what's on your marketing collateral. It's not what you sold. So here's the example, really quick, and then I'll end this. We go to uh, Target. I tell this guy, come with me. We go in there, and his TV mount's hanging on the shelf. His says, 
Again, lightweight, easy to assemble, folds up when not in use, well, competitively priced and made of aircraft steel. And we're standing there and I'm pretending to buy the exercise I told you. I'm in a pair of jeans, tennis shoes. I'm pretending I'm buying a mountain. I watch people pick. And then each time people, I waited for 10 to my own exercise, text 10 people and ask. I waited for 10 people. Each time a person bought his mount, I said this, hey, I'm looking to buy a mount for my TV too. Why did you pick that one? Why did you go to Mind Valley? Why did you do business with my company? And here's what happened. 10 out of 10 people said this. They said, I don't know what the hell aircraft steel is, but I want one of those. 10 out of 10 people. So you know what we did? After asking people the one reason, we took everything off the package in giant letters. It says, the only TV mount made from aircraft steel. And now we sell the hell out of them. So my question to anybody that is selling a product, if you want to scale it, stop selling everything and find your brand asset. Ask yourself this question, what is my aircraft steel? And the way you find out is to ask 10 people who've already bought your product for the one most important reason they bought it. That is when everything I've ever done scaled when I got it down to the brand asset. And I did that by asking people to tell me what my aircraft steel was. I hope that was helpful. That was extremely helpful. And my God, Jeff, I think we're cut from the same cloth here because this is this is gold. And I'm a salesperson myself. Like I love talking about these aspects that really go towards understanding the customer. That's really how you show the love to them. I already see we have so much insights we've covered. I feel like we can continue this conversation forever. And I wanted to bring this with a close. And today you're doing amazing works that I think should be highlighted. You know, in the world today, we want to see that there's more quality, more unity, less biases, less racism. And you were sharing with me an amazing story, which was all about how as companies during the COVID crisis, especially might be going through some struggles, you're doing some initiatives here to actually support Latino, black and other minority groups that are looking to get more funding from the government. And there was a huge data source that said that it was completely skewed. And I wanted you to share more about that. And what is it that you are doing? And what is things that other people can do as business order to bring more of this equality in the world? Sure. So thank you very much for teeing that up because it's really, really important to me. I, you know, was blessed enough by being an entrepreneur to live kind of a life I never dreamed of. Our music company, we won a Grammy and our TV company, we won an Emmy and traveled to 97 countries now. I've had way more blessings than I possibly deserve. I made the commitment to giving back in any way I could to try to, you know, settle that balance sheet a little bit. And so I've been talking to small business owners and entrepreneurs all over the world since COVID hit. And we heard a common theme in the United States, which was that, and by the way, also in some other countries, but let's talk about what we did in the US. In our own country here, the government stimulus money targeted for small businesses, which was called the PPP, Paycheck Protection Plan, was not getting to minority-owned businesses. Latino-owned businesses, 91% of them that applied got rejected. Black-owned businesses, it was 91%. Similar numbers for women-owned businesses, for veteran-owned, for LBGTQ-owned businesses. And so when we looked into it, the message wasn't getting to them. It was culturally biased. There was, it didn't even matter why. Their answer was they weren't getting help. And so I have this quick saying I want to share that, you know, when people ask me, why don't you just retire and go golf? And it's four words that, Jason, that get me up every morning. The four words are, I wrote years ago, there is no they. They don't help these people. When you wake up and you say, man, these minority businesses, they should give them some money. They should help the black-owned businesses. They should help Latinos. There is no they. It's written in giant letters for years on my wall. It's you. And so by that token, it's me. If you think there's a problem, then go fix it. So what we did was 
we created a grant program, and we, in this case, is my organization, Global Entrepreneurship Network, partnered with some friends at an amazing organization called Hello Alice, a small business company. And we created a grant program where we just started giving out $10,000 cash grants. It's not a loan like the government program, and it's not government money. It's private money being handed out to entrepreneurs, especially focused on minority-owned businesses. We just want them to survive, right? There is no they, so we'll help them. And it's been a blessing. One of my close friends and business partners, who's an entrepreneur himself, his name's Armando, but you guys know him as Pitbull or Mr. Worldwide. His entrepreneurial venture into the music business turned out pretty well. Pitbull's been helping me, and if you Google that, you'll see that Pitbull and I have been doing public service television announcements to tell minority-owned small businesses that we have money for them and to come find us and we'll help them get through this very difficult time. So again, I'm hoping that everybody takes a there is no they attitude. The more success you achieve, the more debt you owe back to the rest of the world. You know, I hope that people will find a way to do that. We've been, you know, very, very happy that we found a way to make a difference in other people's lives right now. Jeff, this was an incredible interview. Thank you so much for sharing this wisdom and closing with such a powerful statement of there is no they. It's all us. It's on us to go and make the impact we want to see in the world. And for everybody listening here, I just want to recap here where we really went through an amazing journey of Jeff's career where he just had these big ideas that looked for opportunities where he could actually bring value in industries that if he goes into aligns to his passions and his goals that he had in his personal life. It just naturally flowed this way. And when he started having intention, he was able to create that value, be connected and become that go-to person for that industry. It was such a creative way that you can actually build value. And think about how you can apply this within your own company. If you're working in a large corporation, how do you become that go-to person for every other department? That way you become indispensable as an employee. Now, Fast forward over these crazy, amazing skills that you should be developing. As a leader, which is a quality you should be developing regardless of your title, how do you become more of a servant leader, being in the service of your team? Acknowledge the people that are smarter than you and make sure that they are using their skills to the best of their abilities as you use your skills to the best of your abilities. And one of those skills is to listen. Listen, listen to your team, listen to the customers, stay close to the customer because the more disconnected you are from them, so much waste gets created by products that get invented that don't serve a need or don't have a clear understanding of what problem you solve. Focus on that and you will see that businesses start creating the right thing that solves the real problems. And in closing, there is no they. Stick that message on a wall, such as Jeff has done himself, because once you see all the success that comes into your life, you can count your blessing, count any privilege or chance that you had, depending on what group you are in, and give back to any other group, especially in the positions that you can actually make a big difference. And here, Jeff is making a big difference. We all can make a small step. And so go out there, make that impact, and keep being a superhuman. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this amazing interview with Jeff Hoffman. What an incredible entrepreneur. And I definitely got a lot from this session with him. Now, I want to transition over to the AMA portion of the podcast. Agueda Sanchez has been a big fan listening to a lot of the episodes. And he wanted to ask about, do I use a certain technique to retain information and recall it when appropriate? At the end of every podcast, I usually make an effort to recap all the points that were discussed and some of the guests themselves get a bit surprised by how much of the information I retain. 
So there's two major elements that are at play here. The first one is I did go through Jim Quick's super brain quest here at Mind Valley, which he really teaches you about your memory. One of the concepts from that quest that I really appreciate was the mom technique, which was, you know, what's the motivation you have to memorize? How do you actually pay attention and observe? And what are the mechanics that come into play? And here's something I noticed when I started applying this technique is I found myself so much wanting to do a recap at the end of an episode that I found myself not being as attentive or present during the interview. I found my questions were quite mechanic, yet I was able to do that recall and I started practicing more and more and it was pretty cool. But then the second thing I've noticed is that as I just had a lot of practice, I just always had an intention that I want to make sure I listen and I recall, I stopped focusing more on being active in the way that I listen and trying to really pick up the recap. And I just started just being extremely present in the interview. And this is the magic that started to happen. I just genuinely became very curious and genuinely very attentive throughout the interview. And without putting an conscious effort on knowing that I wanted to recall that information at the end, I just let that information sink in. As far as the mechanics goes about it, I think just having a very high level of presence and being highly motivated to want to remember. So with that intention in place and just being very active in listening, I found that the interviews flow even better. I get to ask better questions and the recall just seems to come to me naturally. And I think you just have that second layer of listening that comes in when you're so motivated to want to recall it. And so not just aiming to recall it, just being present in the interview really allowed me to retain that information. And then it becomes easy to recall towards the end. Now, a second question that Agueda asked is, when is it time to actually take a pause when you do a practice or do you want to keep learning? How deep do you go? So kind of understanding a question of timing, how deep do you go within a specific technique or modality? I don't think there's a cookie cutter answer to this question, Agueda, but what I would say is that I always try to at least go as deep as the practice recommends. Like if it says that it's something you should apply over two weeks, then take at least those two weeks before jumping into the next modality. One of the things I particularly like about the way we structure our learnings here at Mindvalley with quests is that it's very prescriptive on the number of days that you should spend with that particular learning. And one thing I would say is that if you go down a path of learning a tool and you realize that it's just not resonating with you well, I would not fight the resistance. I would say that you want to pick the tools that you feel that there's an adoption and some massive growth and learning. Sometimes I start adapting a tool and I realize that I'm resisting it. I'm not learning with it. And don't mistake that from trying to you know, quit on something when it gets hard. It's realizing when you don't see that it's actually bringing the benefit that you're looking for to actually be conscious and really make that switch. So I wanted to share that out there. As far as taking a vacation, again, I do that whenever I feel that I am not in the right space. And usually the tool that I will use while I'm on this vacation mode is really focusing again on the big why, redefining the vision, understanding the purpose as to why I do anything, because that is what is going to drive the motivation for everything. And so that vacation time is always good. If you're feeling a little lost, step back, journal a bit, redefine why is it that you're doing things. And then once that's in place, you can choose the right systems you want to implement and be motivated as to why you're doing them. Then it all makes sense. So I hope that was helpful, Agueda. And uh, thanks for asking a question. If you have your own questions you want to ask on the show, be sure to email me, jason at mindvalley.com. I'll be happy to answer any questions you have. And until next time, stay superhuman. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mindvalley podcast.